All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer before we open God's word together. Our Father, we're grateful we can come together today to be washed by the water of your word, to understand what has been revealed to us, what has been preserved for us, to understand about what transpired that day on Golgotha, when the greatest battle was ever fought and won, when our strategic victory was won by the Lord Jesus Christ as he died in our place on that cross, as he paid the penalty for our sins, that we might come to understand so many more of the facets and the applications that come that go beyond simple redemption. And Father, we pray that we might be able to focus and concentrate this morning as we study in your word and that God the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our soul that we might understand that which has been revealed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and we're continuing our look at the stages in the crucifixion. And today the focal point is going to be on the mocking, the reviling, the blasphemy that occurred on the cross during those first three hours when our Lord Jesus Christ is experiencing the wrath of man. Now, I've given you a handout, passed out. This is published by Rose Publishing. Uh, it's been, uh, it's available to people to download and to print limited copies per person, but you can't email it out. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. Uh, we're not going to violate their copyright laws. If you're interested in it, those of you who are live streaming or listening to the recordings afterward, you can go to their uh, website. That's Rose Publishing. And you can pick up this this e-chart. But it's a good summary of what I have spent the last several weeks teaching and will continue to teach. And if you look at the, if you divide the page into quarters, if you look in the upper left-hand quarter, starting with just after 10 a.m. where the soldiers divide up his clothes, then the next thing that they talk about is the mockings, the sneering, the insults that are hurled at our Lord. So if you go from that to the, just before the last thing mentioned in that period from 9 a.m. to 12 noon, that's the period that we are talking about. So it's a good, quick little summary of the things that have taken place on the cross. We started off looking at the uh, <clears throat> stages one through five, the procession to uh, Golgotha as uh, our Lord was carrying the um, uh, patibulum 
to the to the uh, site of his execution, and then uh, uh, Simon of Cyrene carried it most of the way. But what we learn there is even in the midst of that, our Lord is demonstrating grace and compassion uh, to especially the daughters of Jerusalem as they are mourning him, and he warns them of what will come and to mourn instead for themselves and their children uh, in light of what will come in the judgment that in AD 70. Now we're in the first three hours, the wrath of man, and what we learn here is the anger, the wrath, the hostility, the bitterness, the vindictiveness, the invective that comes from those who are walking by. And this is just a manifestation of the hostility of fallen man to God as he expresses his full hatred and anger for the creator of the universe. And so we see this in these, in these verses. And what we learn from this is as our Lord is mocked, as he is made fun of, as he is ridiculed and reviled, first of all, he doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't say anything. But towards the end of this time period, we see another marvelous example of his grace and his forgiveness and the application of the gospel. We Just to review quickly what we have looked at since he arrived at the site of the crucifixion in stage 6, we looked at the crucifixion itself, talked about the kind of cross, we talked about what was involved in crucifixion. In stage 7, we are reminded, because this comes into play at the end of this morning session, is that he was crucified between two thieves, and that those thieves weren't actually just robbers. They were involved in the insurrection against Rome. They were probably associates or subordinates to Barabbas, and so there's more to this than just simple thievery. They've committed a capital crime against Rome, and thievery is not a capital crime. Uh, so this has the idea that they were insurrection, insurrectionists more than just the idea of being simple bandits. In the eighth stage, we had the first saying from the cross that again emphasizes God's grace as Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. This is a marvelous example to us that no matter how much we may be ridiculed or reviled, no matter how much somebody may offend us, and whether it is an actual offense on a high order or whether it is simply something that we want to take offense over, we're reminded of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to turn the other cheek. I want to remind you of what I taught on that, that turning the other cheek was a metaphor wasn't that there was a problem in Israel of people going around slapping people on the cheek. Turning the other cheek, if someone slaps you on the cheek, was a metaphor for if somebody insults you, if somebody offends you, if somebody does something uh, that you could take offense over. What Jesus says is that we are to turn the other cheek. In other words, 
don't be hypersensitive or even sensitive and use situations where somebody has done something to offend us to justify retaliation or getting back at them or something other than a an example being an example of kindness and graciousness we live in a world today when a lot of the uh, younger generation and older generation as well has taken hypersensitivity and taking offense to levels uh, probably never experienced before in human history. Everybody seems to get offended at something, but nobody, as far as I'm concerned, is really concerned about the fact that someone who believes what I believe is offended. It is political correctness, which is insanity run amok. But Jesus teaches us the way we are to handle any sort of ridicule, any sort of uh, insults, any sort of, of assaults on our character, justified or not, that we are not to retaliate, that we are to turn the other cheek. And this is an example that he gives uh, on the cross, that he does not revile in return. He demonstrates grace. He asks for forgiveness. And he announces that this rebel, this insurrectionist, this criminal worthy of death by crucifixion is because he recognizes who Jesus is and believes it, that he will be with the Lord in paradise that day. What a tremendous example of God's grace. In the ninth stage, a sign is put over Jesus' head that was written by Pilate that states his indictment that he is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and that the religious leaders want him to change that, but Pilate won't do it. And that tells all these passers-by that are coming along what the crime is, that he claimed to be the son of God, he claimed to be the king of the Jews, and they're going to ridicule him for that. In the 10th stage, we saw that the Roman soldiers divided his garments to cast lot for his robe. And then we come to stage 11, which is the fourth mockery. There were three mockeries prior to the cross, and there are four mockeries on the cross for a total of seven. So this is the fourth mockery. It is revealed in uh, Matthew 15, 29, excuse me, Mark 15, 29, and 30. And those who passed by, remember the cross is by the road that is coming from the west, entering in on the west side of Jerusalem. Those who passed by blasphemed him. We'll look at these words. There's a, there's a matrix of synonyms, blasphemy, reviling, rebuking, all of these different words that are used, mocking him. And these words are closely connected, and they're all of, there's about five different words used by the writers of Scripture, and together they cover all of the bases for the uh, oral slander, ridicule, assaults on the creator God of the universe. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. That's that's a another just an idiom for uh, mocking somebody. That's what that means. And saying, now one of the things I want to point out is there's a Hebrew idiom 
For example, you go back to Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27. We read the statement, God blessed them and said. Okay, you read that as if he did two things. But the way this, what this means in Hebrew is God blesses, and this is what the blessing said. So we have the same kind of thing here. They blasphemed them, and this is how they blasphemed. This is what they said in their blasphemy. So it's not two things, blasphemy and then saying something. This, the statement of what is said is the content of the blasphemy. Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days. That's a reference to the first Passover. Jesus was in uh, Jerusalem. It's described in John 2.19 when he made this statement that if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And John tells us he was talking about the temple of his body, not the uh, Herodian rebuilt temple that was before them. And so they're saying, you claim to be able to rebuild the temple in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Anybody notice the irony here? In three days, he's going to come out of the grave. He's not going to take himself down from the cross, but he's going to have victory over death in three days. So this is the fourth mockery. So I want to remind you of the previous uh, mockeries that have occurred. There are seven mockings of Jesus. Mark 9.12 gives us a prediction of this. Uh, Jesus says, How is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And the Greek word here is exudineo, and it means to treat, treat with contempt, to scorn, to despise, to mock to sneer, Luke, there's a translation in Luke, which is a different verb that is used for sneering, uh, making fun of, uh, turning up the nose or curling one's lip. Those are the synonyms that are listed in the Collins Thesaurus for what it means to scorn and to mock. And so this gives us the idea of what it's had, the disdain that these people feel for Jesus, the, the anger, the hatred, the, the, uh, they have rejected him and they are just yelling and screaming everything they can at him to express their bile towards him. And this expresses their anger and their resentment. This is the human heart in its fallen state, corrupt, deceitful, and wicked above all things, expressing its rejection of God and his grace. He is treated with contempt. Now, another word that is used is used by Jesus in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, where as he is, uh, has entered into Jerusalem, and this is at the con- uh, uh, as he's entering into Jerusalem, or right before he enters Jerusalem, rather, He predicts what will take place. He says, For behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. Remember, the scribes were mostly Pharisees. The chief priests were Sadducees. So he's including both Sadducees and Pharisees in this statement. Uh, Betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock 
and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. This is a different Greek word, impaizo, uh, means to mock, which means to deride, insult, laugh at, to make a monkey out of someone, taunt them, tease them, ridicule them. So you get a good idea of the sense of these words. In Luke 18.32, Jesus says, For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. This is the Greek word hubrizo. We get our English word hubris from this, which relates to arrogance and pride, and it means to act arrogantly, to arrogantly mistreat, mistreat someone, or to arrogantly insult someone. So by using these synonyms, we get a full picture of the hate that is spewed forth toward our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It's happened three times before. It happened at the second trial. That was the trial before Caiaphas. Remember, first trial, he went before Annas, the former high priest, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Second trial is, is much more involved. He goes to Caiaphas. And at the end of that, he is accused of blasphemy, and we're told in Luke 22:63. now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him. They played a game with him. You know, a blind man's bluff, except they're hitting him, saying, prophesy, who's the one who struck you? You think you're God? You think you know everything? Well, tell who is striking you. And Luke says, and many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. This word blasphemy, blasphemeo is the verb, means to verbally abuse someone, to revile them, to defame them. But the word focuses on doing these things towards God, to taking God lightly, to abusing God. And so they are blaspheming him with these various statements. In the second um, mocking, in the second mocking, this is the trial that occurs um, uh, fifth. This is the trial before Herod Antipas, and it ends with the second mocking. He had gone to Pilate. Pilate found out he was a Galilean, so he sent him over to Herod uh, Antipas, who's the king of Galilee, so that he could pass the buck and let Herod take care of it. And Herod is going to send him back to Pilate. But in the meantime, uh, after they have um, received the accusations from the chief priests, Sadducees, scribes, Pharisees, then Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him. They arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back Pilate. So this is the second of the second mockings. The third is in the second trial by Pilate. This is first trial by Pilate, then the trial by uh, Herod, Antipas, and then at the end we're told the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed down, bowed the knee, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So they are mocking and ridiculing him for having made this claim that he was the King of the Jews. In this uh, third mockery, they have completely rejected any of these claims of Jesus to who he is, 
and they are now just just making fun at him before they send him to be crucified. This is paralleled in Matthew 27, 30, and 31, as well as in Mark 15, uh, Mark 15, 16, down through 19. Those are all the parallel passages, and they describe the same event, an event that, according to John, follows the release of Barabbas and is just prior to his being sent uh, to the cross. And it, in all three of those events, crown of thorns is placed on his head and the robe is placed on him. Now we come to what we're focusing on today, and that is these four mockings of Jesus on the cross. So the 11th stage uh, on the cross is the fourth mocking, and he is mocked by the passers-by. I read this verse earlier. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Reference again to John 2.19. If you are the Son of God, where do we have that? I'm reading from Matthew. What do I have up here, Mark? Matthew's here. Did I skip a slide? No. Matthew 27:39 You destroy yeah there we have it you destroy the temple and build it in 3 days save yourself if you are the son of god the if here is a first class condition now they don't believe it a first class condition means if and it can mean if and it's true but it also is used in debates for the sense of if and we're going to assume it's true for the sake of argument if, and we're going to assume it's true because that's what you've claimed to be true. And that's what the idea here is, is if you're who you claim to be and assuming it's true, then you ought to be able to do this. You'd be omnipotent. You should be able to come down for the cross. So come down from the cross. And so this is their blasphemy is because they are treating his deity lightly and irreverently. Uh, if you claim to be this Messiah, come on down from the cross. Mark says those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. That tells us something about how they bla- what they were doing when they blasphemed him, a sign of their arrogance and their disdain, saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. I want you to notice as we go through these four that there is a theme. Each of these groups is basically saying the same thing. If you're who you say you are, save yourself. Give us a sign. Remember what Paul will say later on in the Gospels, the Jews seek for a sign. Well, they had the sign, and that was the sign of Jonah, but they will reject that. And that is when he get, is resurrected, raised from the dead. So this is the fourth mockery. The fifth mockery is in Mark 15, verses 31 to 21. Likewise means in the same manner. So the passers-by are saying the same thing, and the chief priests and and, uh, scribes and elders pick up the same comment and said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, once again, a first-class condition, if on the assumption of his claim, if he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross 
and we will believe him. So they are expressing their scorn for Jesus. This involves the chief priests who are Sadducees and the scribes and the elders who are Pharisees. So they continue to taunt Jesus. In verse 43, they go on to say, He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. You know, he's made such a big deal about trusting God. Why doesn't he call upon God to rescue him? For he said, I am the Son of God. And then there's a quote from the Old Testament. Matthew includes, he says, he trusted in God. This is what they are saying. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am uh, the Son of God. I put that in in italics. This is... um, Seen further in Psalm, uh, it's an application or fulfillment of Psalm 22, 8. He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. So in Matthew 27, 43, we see again another fulfillment of prophecy, that he would be ridiculed, he would be uh, blasphemed, and they would make these claims about him. In Luke 23, 35, they say he, Luke doesn't break down the groups of the rulers. He just says, even the rulers with them sneered. This is, again, another word describing this kind of blasphemy and reproach. It's the word uh, ek muterizo, which means to deride, to ridicule, to sneer, to show contempt. The NET Bible, which I don't recommend because it has a lot of flaws, but in some things it does point out some good things, says that it's a, it is the extension of the idiom to turn one's nose up at someone. So they are superior. They're arrogant. They put themselves above God. And then we come to the 13th stage. Thirteenth stage, there is a, another mocking. This is the sixth of seven mockings. This is when the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering sour wine. Now, this sour wine was given as a way of slaking the thirst. It was very bitter, and it would uh, just dull that that desire for, for thirst, and that way they could continue the torture and so that they mock him by offering him sour wine. He is thirsty. They're giving him this wine just to uh, increase the, uh, the difficulty. And so what we see as we, as we summarize all of these different mockings, that they are at root rejecting God. They are rejecting God's grace. What we see here is that human viewpoint completely rejects truth. It sees it in a, as something that is insane. It sees it as something that is uh, completely apart from their concept of a reality that is based on truth suppression. And if we look at the world around us, we can see this in just about every realm of life. We can see it in the arts. We can see it in business. We can see it in uh, our political leaders, left and right. 
we can see it in uh, corporate America, is that there is this continued and increasing attempt to redefine reality on their own terms. That's Romans 1, 18 to 20, the suppression of truth and righteousness. And what happens when you become a truth suppressor is that you necessarily become a liar, a deceiver, and you can't even tell the truth anymore. This is why it's becoming so difficult in uh, in America and in Western European um, culture to be able to do business because business is grounded upon honesty and truth. And when you have a culture that is based on truth suppression, it destroys all manner of integrity while people are screaming that they have integrity. How does Paul end that discussion in Romans 1, 18 to 20? It says, professing to be wise, they became fools. We might paraphrase that, professing to have integrity, they became deceivers. And we see that over and over again. And the only thing that can give us insight is the truth of God's word. As you take in the word of God, as you study it, as you meditate on it, as it reflects, this is what Proverbs is all about, that the writer of Proverbs is talking about building wisdom and understanding, discernment. And that only comes from the word of God. Only when you have a soul that is strengthened by truth, more and more day by day, then God is building a grid in your soul so that you can spot fraud, so that you can avoid deception. But if you're not spending that time in the Word, then that won't happen. And I'm not just talking about listening to somebody on the radio or on the Internet or listening to me teach the Word, but I mean that's important. But letting the Word itself just be in your in your head, reading it, memorizing it, reflecting upon it. Uh, you get enough corrected translation, and most English translations are pretty decent, that you can do pretty well just by reading the Word to get the basics out of it. But it's the Word of God that David says that he hid in his heart that he might not sin against. The heart there refers to his mind. He hides it in his mind by reading it, learning it, memorizing it, reflecting upon it. And that is what we see. And just the opposite is what we see in the world. And the world is demonstrated here by these four groups, just the everyday citizen who has no interest whatsoever whatsoever in spiritual things comes by mocking. Uh, the religious leaders are mocking. The uh, representatives of the Roman government are are mocking and ridiculing him. And then we're going to come to the last one. And the last one are the criminals that Jesus is being crucified in the midst of. The last mocking is Matthew 27, 44. It's the 14th stage in the crucifixion. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now, this is a different word for reviling. This is the word anadizo, means to reproach, to revile, same patterns that we've seen before, to make fun of, to ridicule, to deride. 
they're initially, uh, according to one of the other gospel writers, both of them are doing this, but it's like with Simon of Cyrene. We speculate a little bit there because it seems like one of his sons later is part of the church in, uh, in, in Rome, is that as he observed our Lord's response to all this ridicule and everything, that, that unlike other crucified victims, he's not screaming out. He is not asserting his innocence. He's not calling for people to put him out of his misery. All the different things that were typical of a crucifixion are not typical of Jesus. And this one criminal is watching, and he sees something different. He sees that this man is truly innocent. It's not just that he's not guilty. He is truly innocent in a legal sense. He is righteous. And so he is going to stop with his ridicule and change. Now, this word that we see here, anadizo, is picked up later on by Peter. Peter, as those of you who've been following the Thursday night Bible class know, Peter is dealing with a, uh, a demographic of Jewish background believers in north-central Turkey who are being rejected, reviled, persecuted in different ways by those in the uh, Gentile community and those in the Jewish community. And the pattern that Peter gives them constantly throughout First Peter is to look at Jesus. He is unjustly reviled. He is unjustly uh, crucified. He, he suffers on our behalf. And that is the pattern for us. That whenever you think somebody has made a false accusation of you, somebody has said something bad about you, gossip, slander, whatever it is, then we're to turn the other cheek. And this is what exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. If you do what is right... Brings glory and suffer for it, it brings glory to God. It's what he says in other places. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, that is, those who revile you, those who reproach you, those who ridicule you or make fun of you because you're, he's one of those born agains. They're one of those Christians. They're one of those, uh, they're really the problem in this country. We need to get rid of them. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Jesus Christ was reproached in ways we can never imagine. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my namesake. What are you to do? Get back at them, cut them off, don't ever talk to them again. Is that what it says? No, it says rejoice. In other words, be, be happy. Have joy, stability, contentment in your soul. The more they ridicule and revile you, the more content and relaxed and joyful you should be. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And back to 1 Peter 2, 23, we read, 
who, referring to Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. No retaliation whatsoever. That's not to characterize the believer. First Peter 3.16, having a good conscience, that's when they defame you as evildoers, when they bring up false charges against you and claim all sorts of things that aren't true. Those who revile your good conduct, um, uh, this is following from 1 Peter 3.15, which says to give an answer for the hope that is in you, that those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Again and again, Christ is our example. We are to be Christ-like. And as a result of this ridicule from the two criminals, we see grace. That's the seventh of the mockeries, but I will go on to stage 15, which tells us about the conversion of one of these rebels, one of these male factors, that Jesus demonstrates grace once again under the most extreme of human circumstances. In his humanity, he is suffering, suffering physically, mentally, emotionally. All of that pressure is brought to bear, yet he has a completely relaxed mental attitude, and he responds to his tormentors and even to this criminal who has just been reviling him with grace. And what we read here is then in 20, Luke 23:39 that one of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But in verse 40, the other answering rebuked him, that is the first male factor, and said, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? See, what we see there is he recognizes that Jesus is God and that he should fear God because they're under the same condemnation Jesus, the Son of God, is under. And he goes on to say, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. We should be on this cross being crucified. But this man has done nothing wrong. Another assertion of innocence, that he has done nothing wrong. Not that, well, he did a few bad things, but he didn't do anything deserving crucifixion. He says, he has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, he doesn't say, Lord, I believe you're dying for my sins right now. But see, what the scripture says is that we are to believe Jesus died for our sins right now. At that point, Jesus died, he paid the penalty. Because he's believed this, he can say this. Because what this statement reflects is he recognizes that there's a kingdom, a literal, historical, yet future kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. He says it's your kingdom, which means he recognizes that Jesus is exactly what that sign claims that he is. He is the king of the Jews. He, he can't make this statement unless he has done what Matthew has reiterated again and again, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He has responded positively to the gospel of the kingdom as it's put in Matthew 24. The gospel of the kingdom isn't simply believing that Jesus 
will pay the penalty for my sins or that the promised Messiah will pay the penalty for my sins, but it adds a different element because in that period of time, the message wasn't simply to the Jew, wasn't simply believe on the Messiah, but to believe and accept the king and the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so it's more than just salvation. It had to do with fulfilling God's promises and prophecies related to all of the covenants in the Old Testament. That which would save a Jew at that time was still the same as what would save a Jew or Gentile today, and that is believing the Messiah would pay the penalty for sins. But there was something else being offered, something that was separate from but offered with the gospel for salvation, and that was the gospel of the kingdom, and he has obviously understood that. The other thing we need to observe here is that there are those who advocate a position called lordship salvation who say that the person who is truly truly believed, and they always put some sort of adverb in front of believe, which the Bible doesn't do, he says those who have truly believed will have works in keeping with their faith. This guy had no time for nothing. He believed Jesus was the king who would bring in the kingdom, and then he died. He didn't have time to do good deeds, because that's not part of the gospel. That may or may not result from your spiritual growth. So he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, assuredly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise was where Old Testament saints went after they died. They didn't go to heaven because Jesus had not yet paid the penalty on the cross. So they would go to paradise, and we're told that after the death of Christ, that he would go to make victorious proclamation to the angels who were in uh, Sheol, At this time, paradise was part of Sheol, the place where the dead went. And then after making victorious proclamation to the the fallen angels that were incarcerated there, he would then transfer paradise to heaven so that in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul goes to paradise, it's in heaven at that time, and that's where paradise is today. So Jesus affirms that this criminal who's guilty of some of the most vile sins we could imagine, has received forgiveness for his sins because he recognized who Jesus was as the Son of God, and he believed in his name, which is what John 3.18 says. He who has not believed, he who has believed on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because, what's the condition? because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He's condemned for not believing. This thief on the cross believed. That's grace. It's not something we do. It's trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study, to continue to study, to reflect upon What was going on on the cross, our Lord's suffering, his undeserved, unmerited suffering, his the ridicule, the blasphemy, all of the mockery, the disdain, the hate, the anger of man that is poured out upon him on the cross uh, was 
nothing compared to what he would experience in the second three hours on the cross. Father, but we see his grace in action, his love for the lost, his love for those who are going through and going to go through judgment, and his grace to this thief. If anyone is listening this morning, we pray that they would come to understand the gospel, that it is simple. It is the good news, the great news that we can rejoice over that Jesus died for our sins, that all we need to do is believe on him to have faith in him. And when we trust in him and him alone, we will have eternal life. He has paid the penalty for us. He has borne in his own body on the tree our sin, our judgment, our punishment, so that the decree against us has been eradicated and our sins forgiven. And we pray that we would accept that by faith alone, trusting in him. And for any who are listening, that they would take this opportunity to make sure they have trusted in Christ. God the Father knows the instant you hear it and believe it, you don't have to pray a prayer, you don't have to say something, walk an aisle, raise your hand, anything else. If you believe as this thief did, then at that instant you're regenerate, justified, and you have eternal life. And for that we rejoice. And, Father, we pray that we will take these things, hide them in our heart, and meditate on them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.